This is episode 43 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with Leslie Rourke. Uh, last week, she was here with us to talk about how to assess dysphagia in our patients with dementia. And this week, we are going to dive into all things treatment. So thank you again, Leslie. I know last week's episode was a huge hit. So um, thank you for sharing all of this wonderful knowledge with us. Don't forget, you can download the show notes. You can go to bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 043 for those show notes. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week delivered right to you were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution membership is. Every week, we send you a two to three page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members, including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They are all blind peer-reviewed by university professors because, well, we don't know the research as well as they do. The professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include how to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant-driven feeding. So lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear of missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members, but also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEU starting in May. So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. Good access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay, join the community now, and feel free to ask away. 
Okay, so we're gonna talk about a treatment. So you, you've done your nice comprehensive evaluation and you have determined that this patient is appropriate for treatment. Again, with the understanding of knowing what stage this patient is on on the global deterioration scale. You may have a patient where you're doing one or two treatment sessions. Um, you evaluate the patient, you determine there's maybe some mild dysphagia, but the patient's significant risk choking because they have frontal lobe damage and they're going to reach across and grab their neighbor's food and shove it in their mouth. And so they are a choking hazard. So what are you going to do? You're going to put them on the safest diet you think they are on. And then you're going to go and uh, speak with the caregiver, the nurses, whatever, you know, in assisted living, skilled nursing, um, maybe they're at home and you're doing outpatients. So you're going to train the family. How are we going to keep this patient safe from choking? Um, the other side of the coin is how are we going to optimize nutrition and hydration? So sometimes the treatment might just be a couple of sessions, you know, getting that training in, um, manipulating their environment. That is so important with patients with dementia. And I know in my show notes, uh, I talked a lot about Tifa Snow. I'm going to put a plug in for her because she is amazing, um, world renowned. And I, truly believe she understands dementia probably better than just about anybody out there and understanding the behavior. And that is what sets dementia apart from stroke, even traumatic brain injury, although there is a little bit of overlapping sometimes. And um, she talks about uh, research, I think uh, five years after tra traumatic brain injury, they are 50% more likely to get to develop dementia with traumatic brain injury. So even if you work with traumatic brain injury, you're very likely to see dementia at some point. So understanding the behavior in the environment that this patient is in, and I can tell you in skilled nursing facilities, it's not always dementia friendly, you know, what they're eating, the environment they're eating in. Um, and talking about this, you know, with, the, with dementia, I think I struggled, Teresa, at some point because how much control can SLPs have? Now, when I just finished taking an eight-hour course with uh, an online course with Tifa Snow, and she does an amazing job of talking about all the different facets of the environment and how we need to change this and do this. But I also remember when I worked in skilled nursing, I wasn't the one in control of that environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not calling the shot saying, you need to put Mr. Jones in a nice quiet room with his favorite music <laughs> by himself. So I think for SLPs, I don't really have a solution for that, but I do have an understanding that if we continue in this way and expect all the dementia patients to be happy with eating a certain way, maybe Mr. Jones always ate by himself. Maybe he didn't like going to crowded, noisy places. Maybe this wasn't somebody who went to a restaurant. Tifa Snow talks about that um, in her courses. Um, so then now he's thrust into this world with 20 other patients who are screaming and yelling. And there's, I've been in places where they've had the loud TV on and nurses are watching the TV, their show, not the show that maybe the dementia patients would like to watch. Um, there might be a loud music on. I've, I've been in um, facilities where they're playing hip hop in the background. And then we've got people in their 80s and 90s in there you think they probably would want to listen to hip hop probably not that may not be um supporting an optimum environment for them to get 
the best nutrition and hydration. So I think we have to start thinking about that. And that's why I say education is so important. If we can get, start getting, you know, not just SLPs, but nurses, caregivers to be educated and understand the dimensions, then maybe we can have some success with changing the environment. But nevertheless, it's important. Going back to when we were talking about assessment and I talked about that little lady that I evaluated and gave her the cookie and gave me the cookie. That environment was perfect for her. She was in her room. She was in her safe place. She may not have understood what was going on, but I do think she understood this was her area. There was no noise. I kept the lights low. I modeled very little talking and I was successful in getting her to eat a whole cookie, which nursing said would never happen in about a 10 minute period. But do you think that that's happening on a daily basis? Probably not. She is being taken into a dining room. Nursing is not going to be as patient and model that behavior. There's noises, sounds everywhere. And so what nursing has told me, if she eats two bites in a 30 to 45 minute period, that's a miracle. It's never happened. But I changed the environment. I changed the approach. And now I was able to get her to be successful in eating. Again, though, going back, how much control do we have, unfortunately? What I will say, you know, working an outpatient, if you're fortunate to work an outpatient or home health, you have an amazing opportunity as an SLP to really educate that family. I do home health as well, and I just love it. It's like happy day when I get a patient with dementia that I can go into that home and really talk to them about, okay, this is what we need to do with the environment when they're eating. I find out things he liked, things he didn't like. And we manipulate that in such a way that's going to provide the best possible outcome, nutrition and hydration. So if you're in outpatient, if you're in home health, you're going to have much more of an impact probably to be able to change things. Not to say if you worked in skilled nursing, you can't, because I think we can it just may be more of a slow ongoing process. And you might have to be a little bit more creative and think outside the box on how we can work. I think, you know, when I worked with nursing, they're always willing to get your input because guess what? They don't want their patient to lose weight because that comes back on them. They want their patient eating. They want them because they're getting weighed, you know, however often they've determined they need to be weighed. Um, they don't want them to be unsuccessful. So sometimes you going in and educating them, maybe educating the administrator, maybe educating the director of nursing, I think is a step in the right direction of saying, you know what, we're, we're all on the same page. I don't want, you know, you to have to hire more staff, but we want Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so to gain weight and to be, you know, the maximum the outcomes for them to be healthy. So what can we do as a team? For this to happen because the way it's working now the way it's going now is not working you know she's not eating she's going to continue to lose weight we all know that so what can we do and very often SLPs are the ones that have to initiate that conversation because you're the ones that are being called in for the evaluation for dysphagia for weight loss what's going on so I don't think it makes me sad sometimes when I see SLPs going in nope they don't have dysphagia they did just fine you know they've had a 10 pound weight loss over the past four weeks they're out the door. Yeah. 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 We still need to figure out what, you know, the best we can, what's going on to cause that weight loss. Maybe we need to collaborate with, with dietary. 
okay? Maybe the food they're presenting, Mr. So-and-so doesn't like, or maybe it's an environment thing, but we're the investigators. We've got to figure it out. So yeah. it's not Asia. Guess what? We're the communication experts. We are the cognitive people. So it's our job to figure out then what is going on. Yeah. And maybe something disease related that we can't control, but we have to figure that out. Yeah. I've got two things I wanted to ask you. So I think yeah. um, when I was working in skilled nursing, I, you know, I always just like to overextend myself and tackle these huge projects, clearly. Um, <laughs> and I, I started a restorative dining program at my facility. And I, I don't think I, I mean, I realized the importance of it then, but I think knowing what I know now, I was like, oh, I actually was doing a really cool thing. So, you know, they would make like a really small, take like a small room and put four of these patients with dementia in there, keep the lights down, you know, no music, and there would just be one, you know, CNA that was trained as a restorative dining aid to kind of model the just eating behaviors. And they had much more success with just, you know, so so like you said, I think, you know, I don't want to say that we can't get these good outcomes in skilled nursing because I do think there are ways that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe obviously having the patient completely by themselves may yield the best results. But if we can put them in a small group at, you know, one table with a few other people, and help with all the other conditions, I think we still can make some headway. Absolutely. I, you know, back in my early career, restorative dining was huge. There was a lot more of that, you know, 10 years ago. It's in my experience in the homes, I mean, it's faded out some. And I think because they look at it as another cost, right? I have to have more additional staff to, or nurses in there. And if I can keep them all in one big dining room, right? Then I don't have to have those, those other people can be going and giving meds or, you know, getting Mrs. Jones in and out of bed. So that again is where, especially in nursing facilities to become, um, SLP to become educated yeah. on dementia. You, I think every, you know, I'm a certified dementia practitioner. Um, it wasn't a huge thing. Um, I went to, you have to have so many hours, um, of working with dementia, a year and then you basically go take a day course and then you apply. And um, when I went to my course, there were nursing assistants, social workers, physical therapists. Um, it was an amazing day. It opened up my whole world to dementia. And I think any SLP working in skilled nursing should do that yeah. because we're the experts, not just with dysphagia, but with communication. So when you have an administrator say, well, I don't have the staff. We don't like to. We don't like to admit that that happens, but yeah. we all know that it does. Yeah. Um, to devote devote to a restorative nursing dining experience, um, that's where the SLP can come in and say, "Yeah, but if we can do this, guess what? They won't lose weight." Right. Well, and it was my understanding the administrator had told me that a restorative program was a revenue generating program that they would actually get more money by having a restorative dining program. Do you know? Right, right. And, and I, re, I recall that as well. Yeah. But I remember working in nursing facility oh, about six, seven years ago where they took the program away. Yeah. And um, I know it was a staff-related issue. I don't know all the details to it. Yeah. But yeah, I do think, I, you know, I don't know all the new... Medicare things with yeah. restorative dining, I, you know, um, the financial end of it. But I, you know, if it is revenue 
dinnering, then that's great. That's yeah, yeah. Work. I mean, that's what I encourage everybody. You know, I'm kind of a little separated from that now, but I mean, if anybody knows right. more about that, please let us know because last, like I said, to my last to my understanding, to my knowledge, it was revenue generating. So why are we not doing it? You know, right? If we can right. help these facilities make some money and get optimal outcomes for our patients, it's a win-win for everybody. Exactly. So. Exactly. Okay. And then my other, my other thought was, so, you know, you say modeling the behavior is kind of the best way to sometimes get the patient to participate. How does that correlate? You know, I know a lot of people are saying that hand feeding has some really good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is that, is, do you believe the hand feeding is just because it's similar to kind of modeling the behavior or? It's more automatic. Okay. Um, And I assume you're talking about, you know, hand feeding versus using utensils. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So using utensils involves more, obviously, gross and fine motor skills um, to be able to manipulate that utensil to scoop and to bring up. Um, the lady that, you know, I was talking about that I got called in to evaluate, she was not using utensils, um, but she was able to still hand feed. Okay. Hand them up. It's more of an automatic. And so that's going to be preserved in later stages, anything that's automatic like that, you know, hands, mouth, when she got to her lips, she knew exactly what to do. Yeah. <laughs> but manipulating a utensil, that's different. Yeah. You know, and again, I mean, if you're, we're talking, you know, stage three, four on the global deterioration scale, that's a whole different ballgame. But when you're talking the later stages, six and seven, um, they're not going to be able to, to manipulate utensils most likely um, and are going to need that modeling hand to mouth to get the process going to where it becomes automatic for them. Okay. All right. So I think we covered everything about environment and how huge of a role that plays. So what about some other treatments? So I think, you know, treating dysphagia um, in the dementia population, you know, exercises, if they're that early stage, if they're pre-dementia one through three, or their early dementia, four, early five, you know, I've been successful with getting a patient to do um, traditional exercises. If, you know, I think the key point here is new learning. I once had an SLP tell me, it was a mentor of mine, you know, as long as new learning's occurring, which new learning can still occur at about stage four, maybe an early stage five, we've got that new one. And then once the short-term memory loss kicks in where their delayed recall is, you know, only a few minutes, um, or maybe a couple hours, you're not going to be as successful, obviously, with doing getting them to do the exercises. But, you know, I think when I treat uh, dysphagia with dementia, it's a lot like if they're in the early stages, it's a lot like treating, with the exception of the environment, um, any other dysphagia. You know, you're, gonna, you're going to refer to evidence-based practice. Um, you're going to refer to your assessment, what's going on with the oral stage, the pharyngeal stage. Um, and, and adapt your treatment accordingly. Um, I did touch, I, in my notes, talked a little bit about um, some of the other treatment strategies uh, like uh, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, MDTP. Um, I know there's big debates, controversial with, with uh, vital stem and NMES, but I've been successful. You know, I had, I've had multiple patients at stage four that had, you know, pharyngeal phase dysphagia. We did vital stem. We we upgrade them, got them back on regular liquids. So I think, you know, if you're if that's something that you do, um, 
it can be successful with dementia as well. You know, once, if they're in the early stages, my treatment doesn't look a lot different um, than, than any other, like a stroke, a traumatic brain injury. Um, but it's when we get in those later stages where they're not following commands, they're not responding to you. That's when you have to start getting a little bit more creative in how you're going to provide treatment with them. What about, have you taken MDTP? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I Have you taken it yet? I have, yes. I finally did, yes. Did you finally take it? Yes. I think I heard a course where you were like, I want to take it. Yes, yes, I finally did. Yes, yes. I love MDT. I do too. So, you know, applying that, you know, the physiology and, you know, the number of swallows and um, if they're that four, that stage four, if they'll sit there and swallow for you, you know, 75 to 100 times, then you, why not do it with them? You know, you're going to do the same thing. Right. Well, and I think that's what I loved about MDTP is I think it can be used with such a wide range of populations. I mean, really, like you said, modeling that behavior here, take a drink, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem to be rocket science, but, you know, obviously the protocol is what's so special about it, but to our patients, they're taking a drink out of a Dixie cup. You know, I mean, how, how challenging, how tasking is that really? Right. And even, you know, your, your fives, you know, if, if they can still pick that cup up and drink or pick that cookie up and eat, they're probably, you know, they're going to go probably longer than, than somebody without dementia yeah, because they yeah. don't know. They're just going to sit there and eat with you, yeah. you know? So absolutely. I think, um, again, if you know, do your traditional treatment, evidence-based practice, as long as you can, it's when you get to that point where they're not following commands, they yeah. can't remember anymore. That's when things really start to change as far as um, how we do treatment. Yep. I don't know. Um, was there anything else regarding treatment? Not that I can think of. Is there anything else you? No, I would say probably the only thing I would add is, um, you know, family involvement is so important when we're talking about treatments yep. with dementia, you know, particularly in that early dementia on up, getting them to participate early on if you can like the one gentleman I talked about when we were talking about assessment and I was the first one to really identify that he was presenting with um, symptoms of dementia Um, I got his wife on board pretty quickly with just treatment and assessment and then as we moved on and he did eventually get the diagnosis of dementia, I'd already been working with her. I'd already established that rapport. And I haven't talked much about that, you know, the importance of establishing rapport. I think it's important with any patient, but I'm particularly biased with this population. You know, you've got to establish rapport, the SLP, with the family member. And of course, with the patient, that goes without saying. But I think with this population, it is critical to get that rapport. They have to get trust in you that you know what you're doing, you want the best interest for their dad, their granddad, um, whoever, and you know, you're gonna work with them because if you can get them on board, oh my gosh, between sessions, the carryover is gonna occur. Because if you don't have somebody on board in your corner, carryover is probably gonna be a little bit difficult. Yeah. But if I'm doing, um, if I have a stage four, early five, and I'm doing MGTP, and I can get the family on board so that they're now doing all these swallows in between sessions. Wow, you know, my outcomes are just going to be that much better. Because my dementia patient's probably not going to think about or remember to sit there, 
you know, and, and swallow all these times. He may not want to eat. Their appetite may be decreasing. They're not motivated. Also, in the early stages, depression is very evident. You know, they're going through anxiety and depression because their world is changing. So now they may not eat. So if they, you can get somebody early on to collaborate with that's going to provide encouragement to them, you know, let's eat, really work with them, provide that support. Um, outcomes are much, much better. So, yeah, you know, I, and I, I don't mean to relate this to kids or babies. That's not my intent at all, but it just made me think of, you know, my son gets early intervention therapy and I just think of how important it is. Um, you know, I mean, I could easily just go walk around the house and get chores done while he's getting his therapy, but I, you know, both either me or my husband try to, you know, make sure that we, you know, catch a little bit of the session. And, you know, it's just so important that when that therapist leaves that we do, you know, carry over with that stuff later. We do, you know, practices walking and, and things like that after the fact. So, you know, not that I'm comparing our, you know, adult patients to our children, but in that aspect, I am just that the the carryover of the caregiver is so essential. It is. I mean, you know, I think we're, we're taught that in grad school, you know, establish rapport. And of course we want to do it with, any patient that we have, the first thing you do when you walk in a room, whether it's acute care, outpatient, skilled nursing, is you're getting eye contact, you're starting to build that rapport. What makes dementia different, um, in my opinion, is it is progressive. And if they do have true dementia and they've been diagnosed with dementia, progressive dementia, it is going to progress. And you're going to probably, particularly in skilled nursing, be with them for the long haul. So establishing that rapport right, right away, getting that trust, so that as dad or mom or grandmom or granddad progresses, they have a safe place to come to. You're the expert and, you know, helping them to understand. And I've had to do that, you know, it, during treatment, say, you know, I, I brought out my global deterioration scale. I'm very upfront with that and say, this is where, you know, your granddad is right now. This is stage four. He's probably going to progress through these stages. We have an idea about how long, but we don't know. Everybody's a little bit different. It's not like a set determined exactly two years in stage four. There is a range, but we're going to maximize what he has. And I'm very open with him up front about that. He's at a stage four. We're going to maximize what he can use now. And I think that is key with treatment with them. What skills do they have? Okay. They've got these skills. Now, what can we do to maximize that to maximize the nutrition and hydration, keep them as healthy as we can, keep them from losing weight, keep them from aspirating. And then we work and then I discharge and then they're going to end up back on my caseload and we work again and we progress through. So that's why I think reports a little bit, maybe a little bit different in this stage is because you're going to be working with them through each stage. Yeah. And you're going to have to adjust treatment for each stage. How you saw them to stage four is going to look very different from a stage six. So understanding that difference and being able to adjust your treatment plan accordingly as they progress. Yep. And that's, I think that's so important. So thank, thank you, Leslie. I think sometimes we just forget how much of a consultative counselor role, you know, I think, I mean, I even had an entire class in grad school on counseling and I feel like somewhere along the lines, you know, some SLPs forgot how critical that is, you know, part of our treatment. So. It is, it is. So, I, um, when I was reading different things and putting my notes together, and I think I attached uh, a blog from Yvette McCoy. Yeah. And so she had a great quote, I think just to sum up, 
um, our role in her paper, her blog that she did, which I love. So I'll read it. She says, as speech language pathologists, we play a very important role in the assessment and treatment of medically fragile patients with swallowing difficulties. Our clinical decisions have a significant impact on the patient's health and quality of life. Let us be judicious in our recommendations, considering all aspects of the patient's conditions as well as familiar concerns. Yeah. So I think that pretty much just sums it up. If yeah. we to that and keep our eye on the goal of better advance through the stages, collaborating with our peers and um, educating caregivers, I think we'll be much more successful with outcome. All right. And what about, you know, I mean, what do we do when we get to the end, I guess? When we get to the end. So when you're at that stage seven and, um, you know, swallowing is not occurring anymore, um, they're not safe, they're not taking in anything. This is, again, where we provide our recommendations. We say, okay, they're not safe anymore. They're probably aspirating. Um, or maybe they're just not opening their mouth to take the food in. So we, again, we do our evaluation. We provide that to the family with recommendations. So if I have had uh, patients in early stage seven where they were still able to take in liquids safely or maybe a couple bites of pureed here and there, that's all they wanted. That's what they were going to take in. So then we bring out those, you know, two words, pleasure feeding. Yeah. So you know, I think it's a family decision, but our role doesn't stop because they're in a seven. You know, it just means that we're not gonna we're not gonna be looking at traditional therapy exercise or any of other our tools in the toolbox. Now it's more about making sure the families understand where they are, what their swallowing looks like now, and providing um, support and recommendations as we can. So if they can take a few bites of pureed and the family's like, I just want them to have something a couple times a day. Um, and, you know, they're, they're able to eat the pureed, then that's what we do. You know, we provide that recommendation, tell family what we think. Um, maybe we work with OT, getting them in the, a, a better position, like you were saying about your patient when you got them upright in the better position. So maybe we do that. You know, I've seen somewhere you know, sevens, we, we got them up in the Jerry chair and, you know, they were able to take a few bites and the family was fine with that. That's all they wanted was just for them to be able to take in a few things. They think, you know, again, this is where that feeding tube debate comes in, right. you know, families are just, some of them are just like, oh my gosh, I don't want them starving, you know, and they're all hands. And so, well, I don't want to give my opinion, I certainly am going to be thinking about, you know, I have an understanding that research does not support, it extends life. Yeah. And so yeah. I tell families, you know, I give them my objective opinion about where their swallowing is, and then to understand the research and um, to make that decision with the physician. You know, I, I have not seen nearly as many patients on feeding tubes as nursing homes as I did 10 years ago. Yeah. So that is a good sign to me. We're moving in the right direction. Um, I think people are starting to understand. Families understand that. They don't want the feeding tube. You know, in, in feeding tubes with dementia, you, you put a feeding tube with them, not only do you have all the normal or the 
the typical things that could go wrong with feeding tubes, constipation, aspiration, reflux. But now you have a pulling out issue. Yeah. They're going to tug at it. They're going to pull at it because they don't know what it is. And they just know that they don't want it, you know, in their body. So I think what I'm seeing now is more of a step away from recommending feeding tube, particularly with the dementia. And that's good. Yeah. But it doesn't mean just because they're in a later stage, we don't have a role. Yeah. We have a role to play um, in the end stage. And in, in, in providing that education and recommendations to other staff members in the facility as well as the family. Yeah. And I think that's what's so like important to understand is that almost anorexia is part of this this end stage of dementia. It so, is. You know, so many people say, well, I don't want them to starve. And it's like, well, it's not really... They're not starving themselves. It's really the, this is the body stepping in and, you know, preserving itself. It is. I mean, the body is starting to shut down and it is a natural process that's happening. And the research suggests that when we then go and, and again, Tifa Snow talks about this in her course, when we go then and pump fluids in the body because we're going, oh my gosh, you know, we don't want them to be dehydrated. Well, now, you know, we're really messing with things because maybe the urination system is not working like it once did. And now they've got all these fluids in. So what are we going to have? Swelling, right? And then they go call an OT or PC or whatever to, yeah. to address the swelling. You know, I mean, it's a natural process that's going to happen. And I think when we try to go in because the family's not ready to shut down, you know, to accept that the body is shutting down. And then we go in and make our recommendations. Oh, you know, eating tube or get those liquids in no matter what we're messing with the system and we could be causing more harm. And that's what yeah. the research is suggesting that we, that we indeed can cause more harm than what we want to help. So. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great, Leslie. This has been so helpful. Well, I'm very glad. Is there anything else as far as treatment? Um, no, I just think, you know, the GDS, the environment, collaboration, knowing what stage your patient's at is key and understanding yeah. how you're going to treat that patient um, using, you know, evidence-based practice, just like we would with anybody else. Yeah. Um, but that there is a role to play in each stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, I know th these are some great references that you put here that, you know, we'll definitely link up in the show notes, but um. Is there any one of these papers, anything that was particularly game-changing to you? I know this Tipa Snow course that you went to, you really loved, but is there, in Yvette's blog, but is there any specific research paper that really hit home for you? Well, I will have to say probably the game-changer with me um, was Paula Leslie's work um, yeah. on tube feeding in the SLP scope of practice. Um, I saw her a couple of years ago. Um, read some of her stuff online and, you know, it really opened my eyes because it made me think about how, you know, I don't, my intention was never to cause harm to the patient. And she really, she talks about that. My intention was to help the patient, but what I was doing when I was making those recommendations early on was actually causing harm, uh, more harm than, than good. So I would say definitely uh, her work on tube feeding and the SLP scope practice would be my, my go-to. It was a game okay. changer for me. I know I attached to um, Dr. Gillick, rethinking the role of tube feeding in patients with advanced dementia. Did you get that? Yep, yep. Great, 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 great information for sure. Very helpful. 
Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. This has been so helpful. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.